This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The 2021 Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival was held in Aotearoa, Dunedin, our UNESCO City of Literature, from the 6th until the 9th of May. In this podcast series, we share recordings from these sessions with you. In this session, Vincent O'Sullivan discusses his most recent work, Things Okay With You, with Lynn Freeman, presented by J.W. Smeaton and co-accountants. Tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa. Welcome uh, to Are Things Okay With You, a conversation with Vincent O'Sullivan. I'm Lynn Freeman from RNZ National's Art Show, Standing Room Only. We've spoken many times over the last 20 years, Vincent, and it's always a joy. Always a delight. This session is sponsored by J.W. Smeaton and co-accountants. Sponsors are incredibly important. These events can't happen without them, so thank you to them. Uh, even if you are sure that you have done so already, please, please, for all our sakes, ensure that your phones are off. I will be looking at you if a phone goes off in this session. I've got pages of questions here, uh, but no doubt in our audience, even though I've been doing this for like 40 years, you'll have some great questions I wish I'd thought of. So keep them to mind and we'll leave the last 10 minutes or so for your questions. Questions, not statements, would be fantastic. Um, When trying to think of the perfect um, snappy but all-encompassing adjective with which to introduce Vincent, I I struggled. I mean, he's multi-talented, that's a good word, but it was a bit bland. I thought, uh, for such an assured writer. So I searched for synonyms, thank you, Google, and I found universal, uh, adroit, deft, verse, slick, ace, masterful, virtuoso, and crackerjack, which I rather liked. (laughs) The irony is that if I just rung Vincent, he would be able to give me the one perfect word (laughs) that I was searching for, because that's what he does as such a gifted writer, and a particular gift for a poet, knowing instinctively that one word to use. If we could do a word count for all of his publications, we'd be well into the millions. As well as his poetry, Vincent is a novelist, a non-fiction writer, a playwright, short story writer, editor, and, of course, biographer. And he was our Poet Laureate from 2013 to 2015. His latest publications were his poetry collection, Things Okay With You, and his biographical portrait, Ralph Hotari, The Dark Is Light Enough, a finalist, Congratulations, Vincent, for the New Zealand Book Awards general non-fiction category. Vincent, welcome, and I, I hope things are okay with you, are they? Ah, well, I suppose I have to say that. <laughs> <don't you>? <laughs> <laughs> um, with all these different forms of writing that you've done over the decades, fiction and non-fiction, long-form poetry, has it been primarily a, a way to earn a living because writing is not easy, or is this the way that your mind works, that you love to be able to go from one to the other to the other? Yes, I suppose... I think of myself as a writer rather than a, you know, a fiction writer or or a poet or something, and um, I, I think part of part of the reason I was sort of doing a, a diverse number of things is that uh, for years I was a teacher, and um, anything to take my mind from that, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I'd, I'd turn to, and if it happened to be the chance of a poem or a short story or something, so um, that was the the main thing I think about the diversity of what I was doing is that it was always, or until I retired, it was always something that had to be on the side uh, because most of your energy naturally had to go into what people were paying you for. So uh, that might seem a sort of fairly sloppy sort of answer, but then I'm a fairly sloppy sort of person. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's yeah. true. Yeah. I guess one of the other 
advantages, Vincent, for you as a deep thinker like yourself is that if you come up with an idea, maybe it best fits as a poem or maybe it is a novel or a short story. You know what I mean? You don't, yes. you don't, have, to, you don't have to squeeze yeah. it into whatever form you specialise in. Yes, that's true. And I think another factor was that when, you, when you're teaching, for example, if you're teaching Yeats for a term or Wallace Stevens or someone, that's a bad term for thinking about writing poetry. <laughs> You know, there's this big, big presence that you're dealing with every day and uh, you're just silly sort of if, if you're not a bit overwhelmed by that and so that's a good time to to write prose, whereas if uh, lecturing on Moby Dick, it's a very good time not to write prose. <laughs> <laughs> Is it as simple to say that you had a first, a first literary love? I mean, was it poetry or not as a, as a reader and a writer? Um, well, I think I must be one of the few New Zealand writers who wasn't a child prodigy, um, who wasn't writing sort of epics when I was eight and this sort of thing, is that um, I, was, I was a latecomer to, uh, uh, it was really sort of just my first year at university that I really got into uh, into a real interest in a fiction with writing. Um, and so... I suppose if you had to talk about a first love, it would be Keats. But then that's probably true of most people or many, many people who like poetry is you can't begin with a better person or end with a better person than that. When you first started writing poetry then, was there something of the Keats in your your work or what were the themes? Well, if it was, it would be very bad. (laughs) Um, When I first started writing, I think, I think there's an instructive story. The first time I sent some stuff off to Charles Brash when I was a student and he, I was absolutely sort of uh, over the moon because he took some poems of mine that I sent for, for landfall. Uh, but I was really so sort of naive about all this and he wrote back and said, oh, yes, he'd like these poems, but there was, there was one line or a couple of lines he didn't uh, really think worked and so what did I think about that? And I wrote back and said, oh, look, just put what you like. <laughs> and, <coughs> he wrote back, and I still remember the phrase, he said, this is a, a shocking abnegation of paternity. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've been an editor yourself. What, what, yes. is the editor's, what is the editor's role when you think about it that that way? You know, was it uh, it's working with a writer to make sure that the work is the, the best at it, it yes, be, I guess. Yes. Um, well, I I think well many of us know he was an excellent editor to work with, and um, it was just a matter of on my part of clicking into what this this meant. But it was the first time I'd been editor. It was the first time I'd been published anywhere, and um, sort of quite frankly, I wouldn't have cared what he'd written there. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I talked recently about this uh, with David Eagleton, who's launching our current poet laureate. Uh, who's been reading his life's work of poetry for this new yes, selected yes. poems, um, The Wilder Years. And, and I, I guess I assumed that reading your life's work of poetry is, is almost like a diary. You know, there's something very personal of the, of the poetry. Do, would you agree with that? I mean, do you, do you enjoy reading your early poems and, and thinking back to that time? Not really. Uh, um, and I'm, I'm not saying that in a, a sort of trivial way. I think most writers that I know, tend to think, of course, wrongly very often, that the best thing they ever wrote is what they've just written now. 
And uh, but I, I think that you're missing a beat somewhere if you're not embarrassed by some of your early writing. Um, but that is an important stage of writing, I think, because part of becoming a writer isn't finding just finding your own voice. It's to get rid in yourself of the things that are bad for you as a writer. So, I mean, anyone who begins writing, they think, yes, I, I'm attracted to it for this reason or that reason. <clears throat> But everyone has bad habits to begin with, I think, except Keats. Um, but I, I think, you know, it takes a number of years to really work the badness out of yourself. Um, Chekhov had a lovely phrase, not just talking about writing, but also he had writing in mind. He said part of the business of maturity of writing is to squeeze the slave from our souls. And I think. Part of what he meant there was an undue respect or deference for what you think is fashion and so on. In other words, the gradually getting the, uh, it's not courage, it's uh, just the confidence, I think, or more important than that, just not caring too much if you're not doing what uh, other people think, but trying to sort of uh, do a bit of self-weeding. Weeding, not our, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you think that over the years you have returned to certain themes in your poetry? Yes, I'm not particularly aware of that, but I suppose it's inevitable um, that if you've got an interest in mythology, for example, you're going to keep coming back to mythic figures. Or if there's some particular obsession you have, uh, I mean, an obsession in a good sense, say, with whether it's mountaineering or or the natural world or some philosophic position or some religious or political position, you tend to sort of uh, move move round those particular points. I think, not deliberately, but you can't help it because these are aspects of your personality that every writer experiences, there are things in yourself that you can't put down, even if you're trying to, and these will out sooner or later. <laughs> and there are stages of life, of course, you know, what preoccupied you in your yeah. 20s is different to what yes. preoccupies you now. Yes. yes, and then what preoccupies you in your 40s and 50s, of course, is what you want to get away from in your poetry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, that, and I'm guilty, as guilty of this as anybody, is... If I read a poem, I can't help but believe it's autobiographical in some way, that the poet ah. is telling me something of themselves. Now, I know here yeah. that that is not always the case. Sometimes, yes, yes, and that's great. But I just can't help myself thinking yeah. that this is a moment of truth, some aspect of truth directly from a poet's life. Now, look, that's a very interesting um, sort of question, that, because I don't believe that poems are autobiographical. Um, and in other words, I think poems are fictions in the same way that a story, a short story, or something is a fiction. And we always assume, I mean, why do we assume that if someone says I in a short story, we accept I, oh, yeah, but that's not the author. This is a piece of fiction. And that happens to be the actual person he's using in it. 
But if we see I in a poetry, we assume that this is a direct sort of nudge and bit of confidence, as it is with some writers like Walt Whitman endlessly nudging you and saying, this is about me. But, uh, and, and, you know, and, and mar- marvellous stuff comes of it. But I, I don't believe that. I think that a, as a poem can be quite accepted if someone says he and she constantly in a poem, of course that's not the author. But there's this sort of, it's as always we've been preconditioned to believe that the lyric I is essential and central to poetry, whereas it is to some poets, but it isn't to others. I think there's a lovely statement of Evelyn Waugh's, admittedly, was talking about fiction, but I think it applies to poetry as much. And he says, I am not I, you are not he nor she, they are not they which lets you off the hook for everything, doesn't it? <laughs> Things okay with you, I think they're taken from, what, 2015 till pretty much now, is that right? Or is this... Is this yeah, about 2016. 2016, yeah. yeah. I, I, I always had this lovely vision of, of a poet filling their drawer with poems, you know, and then time comes for a collection and they physically put them out, but I guess it's all on computer these days. But, I mean, when you're, when you're writing, you've got lots of collections to your name, Vincent. Are you writing towards thinking, in a few years' time, I will want this to be a coherent collection, or do you write what comes from the heart and then the, the genius... Is the structuring, the collation, the, the choice, you know, um, of the compilation yeah. of the collection? No, I don't think I have that notion of a unified collection. Some writers write like that, you know, and they see see their work as gradually working towards a, a unified and coherent statement. But there's no reason why I think being a reasonably and typically incoherent person that my poetry will be very different. So, you know, the idea that you're working towards a body of work and so on strikes me, well, it's a bit poncy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when you were structuring these collections, what, what you know, from the, from the very first to the end, I mean, what, what, did, you, what did you want? Are you taking us on a, on a journey or is it a, is it a, a delicious pick and mix? What would you no, I think it's just a, a well, a day-by-day thing. I mean, if you write a poem in January, there's no reason why I should have any connection with one two months later. It might be. There's no reason why it shouldn't or couldn't be. But there's certainly no reason why it has to be. And some poets work very, very well and impressively um, in sort of a sense of accumulating. So everything's sort of like a pyramid and then the final poem is at the top and you say, ah, that's that's a life's work. But I think most poets are perhaps a little more random than that. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a development in their work or that there aren't certain aspects and themes that might be returned to, but it's not programmatic with an end in view. I imagine that maybe you walk around with a notebook in your pocket. I was trying to see if you had one the other day. But is it, is it, has it ever been like that for you, you know, an observer of people? I mean, I know if I have an idea, if I don't write it down, yeah. I know I'm going to lose it, you know. Um, no, I've never sort of kept notebooks like that, and I don't think I've lost a particular amount that's important by not having it. Um, Do you prefer to think about a poem? Like by the time you come to write a poem, is it almost perfectly formed? or what Oh, no, not at all, I think. Poem? 
think poems, or for me, poems just begin with a, a line or two or something that catches your interest that you read in the paper or some, uh, some political view, view you have, for example, might suddenly cohere around a particular episode or instance or personality that you've read about. And in, um, it's the occasion that promotes the poem, it seems to me, rather than a poem running around looking for occasions. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some examples of that and things okay with you. I'm thinking of the Chinese women. Oh, yes, yes. Very, very powerful um, poem. And I imagine that that started with what it talks about in the poem. This oh, time. yes, that was, that was simply a, a, an appallingly uh, moving piece on television and it, it was uh, oh, just about 20 years ago, I suppose I saw it, um, or more, and it was women in China who'd been condemned to death and it uh, showed them in their last few weeks together always sharing rooms and so on. And then the closer they got to the execution, be shot, they would sort of really start preparing, folding their clothes and washing them to leave to people. And, you know, just here were people in the worst possible circumstances you can imagine not in just uh, a trivial way, making the best of it, but here were people doing things at the last according to what they thought were matters of taste, affection, and the last thing they do would take their lockets off that a lot of them were wearing and, and just say who they were for. And the thing that struck me that these women weren't, God knows what they felt within themselves, but there was no overt melancholy or self-regard and they had a sort of an affectionate exchange between themselves but then gradually grow quieter as the day came and then at the end they just would go out and leave this little pile of things for them, you know, which is, is extraordinary. Interesting you say that that might be something you saw 20 years ago. So is that something that's lived with you and then the time came when you – Yes. For you to write about it. Yes, I think we all have that, don't we? Something we've seen in a, in a movie or something and it stays with us long, long after the context in which we see it sort of uh, – and, and they become sort of not moral guideposts or something, <clears throat> but they're a bit like – port and starboard in our our lives, we know there's a light shining there of a particular kind that if you don't take notice of, there's something wrong with you. Mm. uh, Another um, poem in here that I think did come from a real event was the killing of the black-backed gulls. Oh, yes, yes. So that was a a news story again? That That was a news story this year. Well, just this year about uh, people not far from here killing the black-billed gulls, yeah. Horrendous, actually. Um, the the writing of this, were you writing during COVID as a matter of interest? Yes, well, I was, uh, was mainly sort of revising or working on the poetry book then and uh, um, the, the, a number of writers have read say, or people say, what were you writing through COVID and did it relate to what I was, I suppose, the only thing I've written that related to COVID was um, was that 
little play that I recently had on um, of people sort of stuck in a room and a relationship that they couldn't get out of, couldn't do anything about, and they were sort of barbed wired together, these people. And to stop it being sort of too solemn or finger-pointing and all that sort of thing, I made it a comedy. Um, because I think if you come straight on to a topic at times, the topic's going to be too big for you or the way you approach it will seem a bit lightweight compared with the gravity of the subject itself. So when I try to write about, so to speak, big topics, I always try and find an evasion, a way around them so that I'm not just writing about saying, oh, isn't this terrible? This is something I want to share with you, how distressed I am, you know, and uh, which is a, in that case, it's primarily about you, not the, not the topic. And so to talk about COVID as a, as a comedy also gave me the chance to be distasteful in a way you don't often have. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's, in, in years to come, it's going to be an interesting conversation for our creatives like yourself, Vincent, about the impact of the lockdown and the COVID. Yes, yes, yes. Isn't it? Yeah. And, I mean, I was quite astonished that there were very direct um, for particularly poetry came out in collections that arrived just after yes. um, the, the lockdown, that they were very quick to get in poems about, about that. Yes. But I talked to other artists who said, you know, to be honest, yeah. people can't, can't deal with it. We're, we're in the middle of it now. So yes. people will look to art yes. for an escape. And both yeah. are valid, I think, aren't they? Yes, and, and that's the great advantage of myth and, and, and fantasy and so on, is that it's a way of dealing with a big topic but in utterly different terms, uh, I suppose metaphoric terms. Um, I mean, after all, metaphor, I was always struck when I lived in Greece that uh, carriers, removalists, always had metaphor written on the side of the truck, metaphora, and they were the people who took things from one place to another. And, of course, that's the origin of the word of metaphor, is simply carrying it from here to there. Um, but it's still, you know, just a living trade word there. But that's what we do, I think, a great deal of the time with poetry. I'm not talking about just using images, but we're, we're, we're taking something that deeply interests us to another place where we're more comfortable we're talking about it because we can do it through images or symbols or, or stories. Uh, when your collection arrived, and I was thinking, oh, there'll be there'll be a poem called "Things Okay with You" because that's usually the way it's done. I went down the index and went, "Oi, it's not it's not here." And then I was looking for the um, the Roman mosaic reference, yes. and you made you made us work for both, which I enjoyed. It was like a treasure hunt. Yes. Think, okay, so what does the cover refer to, and where does the and we won't tell people where "Things Okay with You" comes from. Yeah, well, spoil it for you, but but I mean, is that I mean, do you? You, you, again, you've got lots of collections to your name, but how important is the title that you get the right title? How important is the cover? Well, I chose that cover partly because mosaics are always so beautiful, and um, but also it just appealed to me. But as my daughter astutely saw, she said, oh, this is quite relevant. She said, I suppose that apple is all the love poems you've tried to write, and this is what you are now. Oh, <laughs> harsh. <laughs> there is a mosaic reference in there, I must yes. say. <laughs> but t- the titles are important. Look, yeah. This might be a lovely time, actually, Vincent, if you'd be kind enough to read some, okay, of, some of your poems you. from the collection. Okay. Well, <clears throat> this first one 
isn't very serious poem, but it's it's simply from th- that notion that uh, has always struck me as as a bit bizarre with, with with sort of contemporary parents who think that children must never be told that they're not as clever as other children, or that uh, um, you know everyone deserves to win equally, and that sort of thing. And this is called After Lucy Tinakori's Famous Party. I love it that poetry now so possesses the world it is not possible to play pin the tail at a children's party without every child being the winner wherever the tail's pinned. Space is guaranteed compliant, the way thumbs, fumblings inevitably spot on. Every child comes home happy. I won just as much as Jane did. There's as many winning donkeys as smiling kiddies. What a happy thing to realise so early on. Only one child slapped, oh, but lightly, as mum hauls her back to the Humvee, taking her home. Holly, her name, the spoiled child who refused to play, who shouted, I know I lost, stop saying I won. And twice on the drive back saw donkeys and paddocks and tails exactly where she knew they had to be, <laughs> and said, slapped for that as well, see, ass." <laughs> um, With age comes wisdom. Is <laughs> <laughs> that 49? Oh, this is just... I wouldn't say for a minute that this actually sums up sort of what I think generally about things, but it's a way of, of, it says something about poetry, I think. It's called spot on. The rigmarole of to get there, to things as they are. The horde of baguettes in the Bible leading up to voila. The amount of dark required to say morning star. Mm-hmm. And then this, it's, it's interesting, at, I think at uh, arts festivals, poetry festivals sometimes, to, to see what writers are, or at least guess at what writers are thinking when particular questions come up and so on. And, um, and, and some of it's quite poignant and can be, Quite pathetic, some of the questions that are asked and trying to, you know. To, I remember when um, Oliver Sacks was here, he kept being asked questions in Wellington by people with serious afflictions and difficulties until he had to say, Look, I'm sorry, I can't cure you, so don't ask me something else, you know. <clears throat> and this is called Festival Highlight. That dreadful urge, a woman said, to write. There's so much to write, but the words aren't there. You know what it's like? She asks at a fiction workshop. The suffering one goes through with that particular version of distress. Embarrassment hovers. The writer on stage nods kindly as a nurse holding holding high a bottle for transfusions as you sometimes see in news from war zones. She's crying, actually, the woman who asked the question. A right spectacle no one likes to say outright, 
several writers already shaping their forms of pity, possible motives, stories on the make, as the woman knows, which is why it hurts. Uh, I'll try and find that, uh, the Chinese one you mentioned. Ah. I'm sorry, I haven't got it. No, that's Just right. written down. Yes, it's called Some Time Back I Saw It. A video of women about to die in China. Their hair washed and combed the night before. The modest pile of clothes they leave for friends. Women who knew the privilege of minutes, of living sons, of dying with shining hair, unlatching lockets from their throats. Last things done well. Um, I'll, I'll read a, one that's not from this, a, a more recent poem. This business I, I was just talking about of trying to, not coming directly on with a, a subject because sometimes you you can't. I mean, if someone said to you, write a poem about deaths in India, it's an impossible thing to say, you know, and you'd be belittling, the, not belittling, but not doing justice in any way to the subject if you took it so lightly as to think you could say something significant about it. And so there's um, a, th- a thing that uh, struck me. I was reading somewhere that um, they were talking of opening before all the second or third wave of the COVID started of what it would mean for local people in some Asian countries, if tourism was opened again, and how this would be good, is it? This rather condescending article said, even for, you know, street vendors and um, cycle men and so on, how good it would be when the COVID's over. And this one's called Silver and Sun. Now the tourists are back. The silver man can again be silver. The streets are full of couples craving the exotic. Wake up, the man tells his son, it is time to be silvered. He mixes screen print ink with cooking oil. His fingers stir them with toxic metallic paint. Sufficient for the day is the day's evil thing. I see him mid-afternoon as our rickshaw cycles the people's park and a dragon dances, xylophones make waterfall music played by beautiful costume girls. The man and his silvered son are smiling on pedestals either side of the pathway. Still there, still silvered, at seven when we go to eat, when we leave at eleven to find cleansing ales. He and the boy have gone soon after that. The man who smiles silver whose skin is dying, the boy who helps his father dress for death each morning. Now the tourists are back, how every minute counts. Mm. So, uh, I'm, but, I'm, whenever I get a, a, a collection, Vincent, of poetry, I expect to find at least one poem about poetry. It mm. is a favourite thing for poets to, mm, mm. to think about, isn't it? And, and poetry is mentioned here. Poetry surely is more than pecking feathers, is the last line. Yes. Your poem on co- co- confessional verse. I mean, what, is, is that 
you think about poetry and, and you something you want to try and express mm. in the words. Well, it's a it can be a sort of uh, a provoking thing. This I think some people take poetry far too seriously <clears throat> um, and think, oh, because I've written a few poems, isn't that special? No, it's nothing special about that. It's it's one of the many things I just so admire about John Mulgan as one of my favourite New Zealanders, as he said that, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with poetry, but there's a hell of a lot more in life than that. And you can't just leave it. In fact, he had a, an engagement that broke up because his girlfriend wanted to talk about T.S. Eliot at breakfast. <laughs> and <laughs> And... I think at times, especially with poets together, we can get get a bit solemn about what we're doing. And the number of poems, and especially if you um, if you look at uh, at Facebook or, or sometimes people taking themselves so seriously, you know, and you think, oh, a new poem's written that uh, God, you know, isn't this this a marvelous new thing? Now, I'm not belittling art at all, and. It's the the thing I always think the best thing about art of any kind. It is the one absolutely guaranteed area in all our lives where we are totally free. No one can tell us what to do or what not to do in art, and no one can tell us what to like or not like. And it's marvellous to have that rare area of life um, where people can't lean on you in any way. And it's pretty difficult to think of any other area that quite gives you that sort of lovely sense of what how you engage with the world is entirely on the terms that you like to accept between yourself and the artist. And um, But at the same time, I think that, yeah, sometimes I get a bit, bit bored with the way poets go on, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> um, while, while we're here, it's a, the perfect opportunity to talk about your other recent publication, say nominated for a book award, um, on Ralph, Ralph Hortere's biography, because I was lucky to see, I hope you all did have a chance, see the exhibition of Ralph's work here uh, and in this gallery, and it was done so beautifully. And I think it was one of the, the two most profound moments I've had mm at an art exhibition, that and Lisa Day Hana's In Pursuit of Venus. Yes. Um, love the Grand Masters as I do. It was a really profound experience to see Ralph's work there. Um, for me, the black-on-black black works in person, I think it's the first time I'd seen them. I was just mesmerised by it. But the, the, the role of the biographer, um, Vincent, is um, there's a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. You're wanting to tell a story. You're talking to people. Um, Ralph was somebody, obviously, you know, whose work you respected, so you mm. have that, but you're also an honest soul. So how did you approach Ralph's biography, and what did you find out about him that maybe surprised you along the way? Well, I think the first thing you accept when you're doing a biography is that this could be told very differently by someone else. And if you take anyone, if you take... Uh, a literary figure or you take a politician or something, and if you read three different biographies, it's extraordinary the difference that you'll generally find between them. And it's not a matter of saying one is more valid than the other. It's how material is used that makes it either more useful or trustworthy or something than another. But um, we have the notion that 
obviously biography is a long way from fiction because fiction's completely, you know, we, we, we like to believe sort of just sprung out of nowhere in a sense, whereas biography is, is bound. I mean, uh, the, the pegs are here. You've got to keep within particular boundaries. But then the interpretation of these, you know, for example, I mean, the most obvious example you might think is you take, say, someone like a life of Luther. If you're on one side of a, of a religious divide about the, uh, the Reformation, it's going to be a vastly different book to the one written from the other side. And even if we're talking about artists or writers, that can be the case. You know, someone can write a book that makes someone come out to be an agreeable person, um, like a, a, a recent book on, on Freud, the painter, or another book can say this man behaved pretty monstrously. And so that's the first thing I'd insist, that a biography attempts to avoid inaccuracy and distortion, but at the same time it is subject to personal decisions in the same way as any other story might be. Um, so that's why you can say, oh, well, that's a good way of getting out of it. If someone says, look, I don't like your book, well, you say, oh, that's all right. It, uh, <laughs> you know, this is just my interpretation of it or something. But um, And then taking on I, – I took this book on because Ralph invited me to, and um, I was very aware of areas I wasn't very proficient in or that might have actually uh, – uh, been against my doing it, as I said to him, you know, I wasn't an art critic. And um, I was a Pākehā, and he thought neither of these were uh, prohibitive in any way. The one thing I remember he said was that he didn't want anyone with an agenda. So I suppose, um, you know, there was a, just a common sense thing in that, that if you are someone who isn't a specialist in your area, you're less likely to be pigeonholed because they won't have preconceptions about you. Would you have done this biography, Vincent, if he hadn't asked you? No. I mean, knowing that Ralph is such an intensely yeah. private person, yeah. it was a great honour. Yeah. But no, I'd have never taken it on. No. Otherwise, because um, I'd have thought, well, there are all sorts of people in the art world know a lot more about it and so on. No, it was. It, I certainly wouldn't have taken it on um, with, with, without that. Without that sense of trust, it was important to be there from the beginning. And But yes, but it was a difficult book to do for the reason you mentioned, is that he was an intensely private person. This doesn't mean that he didn't sort of speak openly about things to people, but it was very, very difficult. In fact, it was impossible to get Ralph to talk about things if he didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was that. Um, a good example, there was a particular motif that he used often in his painting that he took from um, a gypsy church in the Camargue, and it was um, a heart with a, an anchor on it and so on, and he was very drawn to this, and he used it and adapted it over dozens and dozens of works and... and um, uh, and paperworks and so on. And I tried to get from him why 
this was of particular significance. I could see that, you know, there were religious connections with it that uh, interested him. I could see that there were, uh, you know, pictorial reasons for it. But why did it interest him so much? It was really struck me as a fascinating thing to try and find out. And I think it's one of the few times he got sort of um, clearly a bit irritated with me when I kept, and he said, because it bloody looks good. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the answer, and and a very good answer. You know, and there's a point with, even with a biographer, don't expect to know everything about me, you know. And I think people who knew him, apart from, a handful who were extremely close or some of his family. This was the thing. They found him private to the point of secretive, I think. And to be quite honest, we didn't have any sitting down talking half an hour seriously about art. You could talk for half an hour about golf or something, but he just felt very... Uncomfortable, and I think one of the reasons for this is that one thing he had a horror of, and that was being labelled. Even his own discomfort at times, which bothered some people, and it shouldn't, that he didn't like, say, being described as a as a Maori artist at certain stage in his life. And he said, "People don't talk about Charles Brash as a Jewish poet." And he felt if you used, in other words, that an adjective always diminishes or confines what it is speaking about. So if you said, oh, well, he's, it would mean nothing, say, but if you said, oh, yes, he's a, a North Auckland painter, I don't know what that would be meant to mean, but you can see immediately it sort of puts him in a box and confines him. If you say... He was a Maori painter. He f- think he felt that this meant certain aspects of being a painter weren't being attended to because something else was being emphasised. So it was that, and I think it was very important to Ralph that he was so open to European painting as well as clearly all sorts of aspects of Maori thought and Maori painting and this was one of the marvellous things about that exhibition, is that at the end of that, you might, and I can see why you might say, goodness, only a Maori sort of absolutely steeped in Maori conceptions about time and, and the rest of it could have done that extraordinary range of paintings. But also, you'd have to say, only someone who's enormously informed about European and American painting could have done that. So whichever adjective you used would be a confinement. And I think it's possible to make that into a problem if you want to, one way or another. Um, But it wasn't a problem for Ralph. (laughs) And as far as I'm concerned, that's the answer. He was also, one of the things that makes it a bit difficult, I suppose, to to talk about him is that he he simply didn't make any statements about art at all 
as far as I know. I've seen one annotation in a book he had and in which there was a sentence about Plato regarding artists as possessing divine madness, and this was the one tick I've ever seen in anything um, that he read. So even though that, you know, I tried to give a a reasonable and, and not too sort of arty account of of Ralph, I'm very aware that there's a vast amount that can also written be written by Ralph by someone who'd be privy to things that I know nothing about and that he didn't talk to me about. Oh, you've done him a great credit. I promise you time for um, questions. And, yes, we do have ten minutes. So this is your opportunity. It's a, I mean, I get to do this and it's a real thrill, but you'll have questions that I haven't thought of. Um, so please, if you could put your hands up, we've got a roving microphone. Do take the chance. Vincent's got to head off, so he won't be here very long afterwards. So this is your best chance if you're a little bit shy to ask a question. When you have an idea for a poem, does it flow spontaneously or do you do several drafts? No, not really. I write I write a poem and sort of and put it away and it's as if that sort of pickles it for a while and if it if it comes out and it still shows any sign of life I might, I might breathe a bit more into it but um or you can tell then if it's you know it hasn't got the makings so so there's nothing very uh, either long-winded or or mysterious about it yeah Vincent I had a question about uh, the Hotere um, biography and especially about um the audience and thinking about who you're writing for um reading the biography I'm Thinking a lot about how, you know, a New Zealand audience will know Gordon Tovey or Colin McCann or whoever. But if you're outside of New Zealand, maybe, um, yeah, those sort of figures will need a, a certain amount of context. So, uh, and, uh, you know, Hodere seems like a, a, a an artist who de- deserves an international international attention. So were you thinking about that as you were writing the biography or did you just... Yeah, who is your no, audience? Who, no, who I, I wasn't thinking about that because I was very aware that when he asked me to to, to write, uh, if I was interested in writing the book, and said, and you can say anything you like and use anything and put absolutely no limitations on it in any way, and it seemed to me that my brief was a comparatively simple one of to tell the Ralph story in a way that would not so much make but in a way that would make his own fellow countrymen aware of what he came from and what he was trying to do. And it never occurred to me what an overseas person might 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 think about that, which uh, which would be a different kind of book, I think. Mm. Any other questions in the front here? Thank you. Oh, Steve. Hi, uh, Vincent. Um, It's all very well that you've written these stories of the lives of John Mulgan and Ralph Hottery. Are you going to write the story of the life of Vincent O'Sullivan? Is there a memoir due? (laughs) Not an earthly (laughs) chance of that. Um, In fact, I've just been reading the third volume of... um, 
of a writer writing about himself. <laughs> and I went through so many tissues, I thought, no, I couldn't possibly. <laughs> no, it, it, it doesn't interest me, Steve, at all, that idea of... Uh, uh, quite honestly, though, one reason is I don't, I don't think I could tell the truth that long. <laughs> and I, I don't mean that as a, a jokey way, but I think of my boyhood or teens or something, and I can remember them, you know, with accuracy and so on. But I don't think I could write about them without in some way twisting the narrative, whether I really wanted to or not to present a certain image, because after all, an autobiography is making an image of yourself, and that doesn't, doesn't particularly appeal to me, or at least I haven't got the skill to do that. I suppose that's a more honest way of answering it. Yeah. You've got an, and the spook at life writing, I dislike biography, one's own, that yeah. is. So <laughs> I figured that was the answer to your question. Yes. We've got yeah. a question in the front row here. Yes, hello. I have a question about when you have an idea for a poem. Do you have a preconceived structure? Do you always use free form or do you consider a more structured form like a sonnet or a Japanese haiku or some no, other I'd, form? I'd, Can you work within that structure? Yeah. Um, now, I think when you think, when you start, the idea for a poem doesn't sort of give you the form. What gives you the form is the writing for it, of it. And so after writing a line or two, you sort of think. But I don't use – I think it's – I wouldn't say I'm a formalist at all, but I'm very aware when I'm writing of that um, there's a certain pattern of, of stresses and so on and that it has a definite shape to it apart from the meaning and – whether other people respond to that or are aware of it even, I don't know, but, I mean, it's important to me um, to so it doesn't sort of sprawl. Often I think a poem, if you don't have any form at all, you've still got a form. It's just, it's like you've taken the mould off a blancmange too early. <laughs> and there's no reason why anyone should be interested in eating it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and as Herman Melville said, form is the preserving salt. And I think that's, you know, and there's a vast ways of coming at form and some more obvious than others and some outdated and old-fashioned and so on and some challenging and new and so, and that won't last, others that will. But I think you can't help if, you, if you're uh, uh, writing poetry but be aware that this is the form of language that more than any other demands form to it. There's a very, it might sound a little glib, but it's a, a, a very good thing said about it by um, the French poet Valéry in the 1930s or 40s um, when he said that poetry to prose is like walking to dancing. We use prose for a particular purpose, and it's like walking across the room. We walk because we, we have a purpose to get there. Or even in a story, we want to tell a story, we use prose to make it quite clear how we're getting here to there. Whereas poetry is more like dancing. It has no purpose beyond itself and the satisfactions of it. And what gives it the satisfaction that you're using a form that is purposeless. 
but for the gratification of itself. So I think, you know, there's something in there. You've got a sonnet in here, Captain Jackson's sonnet. Oh, yes. Rereading that for the, with the form. Yes. But one of your, well, may not be one of yours, of course, um, a, 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 a whale, a whaler. Lovely story in there. Yeah. Probably got time for one more question. We're going to finish with a, with a poem, but we can squeeze in one more question if you have this opportunity. Oh, let's have two poems then. Can we have two more poems? Oh, no, look, I'll just finish another. Um, you want, uh, this is a way of, well, not all poets will agree, why should they, but again of coming out when there's a big disaster. As I say, I could never presume. I don't know how you would write something like of an air raid or a, or what's happening in India now. But get an image so that at least a little corner of that story um, can be told, but by attending to something else, that metaphor thing, you've carried something from here to there and I'll do it in terms of there, although we still know it's about there, where it came from. And it's called Premonition. Once they hear how the spiders are weeping, strangers begin to touch, consoling each other. Not surprise, so much as fear running through the suburbs, neighbours checking the ledges of sheds, the doors of garages, turning the carpets where house spiders homed. It was loss you observed. Dab your finger where you had seen them, you taste the tears. Drenched webs sag tangled rigging, millions drowning in, in days, folded legs drawn up like the legs of hungry children, the soft-hearted, thinking that. The bodies scooped in shovels, miniature seething pyres smoke a street's backyard. The cry leaps city to city, a webless world. Amazing how badly we take it, craving comfort as we do. Our waiting for worse to happen, as it will. The falling stillness, our unspun lives. Oh, yeah. thank you, Vincent. That's, that's quite the way to finish this. Now, you can meet Vincent yourself, have him sign your books if you're too shy to ask a question. I'm sure he'll answer it for you. At the signing table, his books are available at the UBS Otago Festival bookstall just upstairs, I think. Please join me in thanking, if you would, Vincent O'Sullivan. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival podcast was brought to you with funding from Copyright Licensing New Zealand and the expertise of ORFM. The festival also offers thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council and the Otago Community Trust. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.